is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name is Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. Could farmed crocodiles in the Northern Territory soon be sitting back to a plant-based diet? We are trying to work on uh, a, a vegetable protein-based uh, diet. The American alligator and Nile crocodile have been soybean-based and corn-based for years, similar to dog diets. Crocodiles going vego. What is the world coming to? You'll learn more about that research soon. In other food news today, Australia's food safety regulator has given the green tick to quail meat made in a lab. It'll be a few years before this is in retail shelves in Woolies or Coles or anything like that. But in terms of the future of food, we see this as an additional protein source uh, building alongside the sustainable farming we have. This is all coming up on today's Country Hour. And for cricket fans, don't you worry, I will keep you up to date on that first test underway in WA. Australia have won the toss, elected to bat, and are currently none for 44. G'day to everyone who is tuning in this afternoon via the stream or the ABC app or via our podcast. It's good to have you here. First up, let's talk about the weather. Tropical cyclone Jasper crossed the Queensland coast late yesterday as a Category 2 system. It's now been downgraded to a tropical low and is headed for the Gulf of Carpentaria where there's a low to moderate chance of it reforming. Now, this system, it is bringing some seriously big rain. There are spots in North Queensland that have received well over 300 millimetres in just 24 hours. Abby Halter spoke with cane grower Bill Phillips-Turner earlier this morning. He farms near the Mossman River and says there's water everywhere. It's been windy all night and we've had constant, um, very torrential rain for the, for the last um, four or five hours. Just very, very constant and heavy. And, uh, and there doesn't seem to be any let up. And because it's still so dark, I haven't been able to check the rain gauge, but we would have had uh, hundreds of millimetres for sure in the last, um, you know, overnight. So you're not too concerned about the river right now? I, I'm, I'm Personally, I'm not concerned about it, but as far as um, the uh, sugarcane crop and everything else goes, obviously that's probably the biggest threat now is uh, how much rain we do get over the next day or days and uh, whether or not it's just going to be a quick flood up and down. But uh, but the Mossman River can come up very, very quickly and, uh, and I'm sure that's what it's done, but I would presume it's... Still got a way to go yet because, um, you know, the mountains, uh, it's been very, very heavy rain in the mountains just to the west of us. Yeah, so then speaking of cane, how has this been for your crop? Well, up until um, up until yesterday morning, uh, it had been good because uh, we needed a, a, a small amount of, uh, you know, we needed a 50 to millimetres of rain because it was starting to dry out. But since then... Uh, it's been uh, sort of very heavy rain and um, yeah, we don't want too much because it'll certainly affect um, any people that have uh, had sort of late planting. And secondly, um, I suppose the best, the best thing out of this cyclone is the fact that it's come in so early in, de- in mid-December because had this been um, sort of late January onwards, it would have been quite a different story because the cane would have been a lot bigger and I presume um, with the winds we've had, there would have been a lot of broken cane and lodged cane. 
And now this isn't your first cyclone. Um, how is this one comparing to the last few that you've been through? Sort of low on the uh, sort of wind scale compared to others. And, uh, but apart from that, it's much the same. But, uh, we, I mean, it's very, very fortunate that it was only Category 2 from our point of view. And um, it's um, yeah, what you'd expect. That is cane grower Bill Phillips-Turner. So as we go to air this afternoon, ex-tropical cyclone Jasper is sitting pretty much smack bang in the middle of the Cape York Peninsula, and it is heading west towards the Gulf of Carpentaria. Now, the Weather Bureau in the Northern Territory has just held a press conference to update the community on what to perhaps expect over the coming days. Here is senior forecaster Sally Cutter. The cyclone Jasper has weakened out into a tropical low. It is continuing to move in a westward direction and should reach the Gulf of Carpentaria on Friday and then continue to move in that generally westerly direction across the, the Gulf over the weekend and potentially reach the top end coast on Monday. Um, and, and when that storm reaches the top end coast, do we expect to see it remaining as a tropical low or could it re-intensify into a cyclone? As the as ex Jasper moves across the Gulf of Carpentaria, it may re-intensify into a cyclone. But at the moment, we've only got a, a low, low to moderate chance of that happening. Once it reaches land, is or the top end, it's really going to depend on the exact path it takes. If it continues in a westerly direction across the top end, we're going to across the land. We're going to see heavy rainfall associated with it, but not so much the wind. There is the chance that it might go further north and move just offshore into the Arafura Sea. If that happens, that's when we're going to see a greater chance of it redeveloping into a cyclone. That is Sally Cutter from the Weather Bureau. We will be speaking to the Bureau ourselves at five past one to get the very latest on next tropical cyclone Jasper. If you have a question that you'd like to put to the Bureau, send it through on that text number 0487. Double nine one zero five seven. So that's zero four eight seven double nine one zero five seven. If you've got a question for the bureau, it is twenty four to one. You are tuned into the Country Hour. Up next, we'll be talking about crocodiles. Uh, farmed crocodiles in the NT about to go vego. G'day, Sam Nowen from the Darwin Aquaculture Centre. Been managing the trials for oyster production on Golden and Tiwi Islands. Gotta love a territory oyster, and you're listening to the Country Hour. Australia are off to a very good start in Perth this afternoon. Australia won the toss, elected to bat, and are sitting on none for 51. Warner's on 34, Kawaja's on 16. Great start there in Perth. Well, it's one of the iconic industries of the Northern Territory that is said to contribute more than $100 million to the local economy. But recently, crocodile farming has come under the microscope, with the federal government reviewing the industry's code of practice. Against the backdrop of increased scrutiny, AgriFutures held a webinar this week about what the industry is doing to guarantee its future, including, potentially, feeding crocs more than just meat. Max Rowley has the story. It's big business in Northern Australia, producing saltwater crocodile skins for luxury fashion retailers like Louis Vuitton. 
The primary market uh, is the high-end fashion uh, houses of Europe um, to produce luxury handbags and shoes and such. And I think based on the last statistics, Australia is producing 8% of, uh, of the world crocodilian skins. That's Sally Isberg, a crocodile husbandry expert and Darwin-based consultant for the Territory's croc farming industry. And she's been looking at how the sector can thrive into the future as changing fashions shift market demands. The current demand is for uh, smaller belly skins, which are around 25 to 35 centimetres in belly width. Um, But in the past, the demand was for much larger skins when larger style handbags were in fashion. This week, she launched the industry's first research and development plan with AgriFutures, which looks at everything from new markets and value adding to feeding crocs a vegetarian diet. There's been a heap of work go into artificial feeds already in the industry, uh, a lot of that backed by AgriFutures over the years as well. We are trying to work on uh, a vegetable protein-based uh, diet. The American alligator and Nile crocodile have been soybean-based and corn-based for years, similar to dog uh, diets, um, but our salties are the divas of the crocodile world and are not quite as accepting of, of anything that we've presented to them with, with with complete reliability at this stage. So maybe no vegan salties yet, but sustainability seems to be a key focus for the industry. So in the development of this RDNE plan, uh, we first sent a survey out to uh, you know, 56 industry members, including downstream users of the product, so tanneries, manufacturers, cosmetic com- companies. So we could get a really good understanding of what the challenges the industry faces at all levels of the supply chain. The highest ranking priority from the survey was environmental sustainability and social licence. But croc farming has come under fire from animal welfare groups. And in July, the federal government announced a review into the industry's code of practice, which oversees everything from collecting eggs and catching wild crocs to breeding in captivity and how the apex predators are killed. His Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek, speaking at the time. It is a growing industry. We have more science. We've got new techniques. It's time to update the code of practice. But Sally Isberg says she welcomes the review. Uh, The fact that we have a code of practice for the crocodile industry, which is actually currently in the process of being reviewed, is considered a major strength as it shows our commitment to improving crocodile welfare. The industry already shows significant environmental sustainability from the perspective of the sustainable use program and the and the, in the wild egg harvest and the strong healthy wild populations that we have in northern waterways. On farm, however, it was considered really important that we understand um, the, the the businesses from a life cycle analysis perspective, um, as well as making continual reductions in water and energy use, as well as carbon emissions. The industry is also keen to talk up its benefits for remote Indigenous communities and ranger groups supporting local jobs through egg collection. One thing that the industry is trying to do is really extending those benefits outside of just a royalty payment for eggs. So there are satellite farms being set up on communities, which therefore means that, um, you know, that the landowners are going out to collect the eggs, but then the eggs are being incubated on country and then the animals are being raised on country. And that then provides, you know, 
employment opportunities, training opportunities, a reason to get out of bed in the morning, those kind of things. So again, there's a real social element to that, which which further contributes to our social license. And as I said, I'm really proud to be a part of this industry. So what else does this AgriFutures Research and Development Plan look at for the croc industry into the future? Developing new value-added byproducts, um, you know, to, to better utilise that whole tip-to-tail philosophy of animal use was also seen as a high priority, particularly around the beauty and, and medicinal industries. So, uh, you know, fat and uh, and and blood perhaps in, in the Chinese medicinal market and, th- and things like that. And then the final priority uh, is to ensure that we have a resilient and capable industry. As mentioned before, 89% of our survey respondents were really supportive of developing a national industry body. Um, the other priority identified was the development of accredited training programs uh, for industry participants so that they can enhance, so that the whole industry can enhance their uh, their capacity. That is Croc consultant Sally Isberg, who was one of the key speakers at the AgriFutures webinar this week, which was looking at the future of croc farming in Australia and potentially our farmed crocs sitting down to some soybean. My goodness, what is the world coming to? It's 17 to 1. You are tuned into the Country Hour. It's Thursday lunchtime. I wonder what your thoughts are on sitting back and enjoying a feed of quail meat that's been made in a lab. A company in Australia has made this product and the nation's food safety regulator has this week made a big decision about it. I'll tell you all about it next, but first let's have a song. And I feel like I get to play this probably once a year on the Country Hour. It is the first day of the first cricket test of the summer. So I hope you like this one. We made a hundred in the backyard at G'day, I'm Angus Gidley-Baird. I'm the Senior Animal Proteins Analyst with Rabobank and you're listening to The Country Hour. And I reckon at Perth this afternoon, Warner and Kawaja can smell 100. Australia are none for 54 in the first test of the summer. You are tuned in to the Country Hour. Now, meat grown from quail cells has been deemed safe to eat by Australia's food safety regulator in a major first step for the cell-based meat industry in this nation. The quail meat is the first cell-based meat product to be reviewed in Australia, and for Zanza's judgment, well, it's now open for public feedback. The company making this quail meat is the Sydney-based company Vow. Its senior government affairs lead is Nick Chilton, who says it's an exciting time for the industry. So at this stage, we're about halfway through the process. So far, for Zans's results, as they concluded that it's safe, like we have, and the tests that they've done, which are now made public, show that we've met the criteria, we've met all the uh, limits and the thresholds that Fazans has set. Now we get to move into the public consultation part of the process. As part of the assessment, Fazans has also made labelling recommendations and they've suggested that cell cultured could be used on labelling. What do you make of that suggestion? Look, we were expecting that and uh, we, we're actually quite happy with that. We recognise that this is a completely new product and we want consumers to be aware of what it is. Uh, we want them to understand it's made in a different process. Uh, and we think cell cultured is a, is a really 
fair middle ground, um, given there's a few terms floating out there, given some of the concerns that have previously been out there for plant-based proteins, particularly in terms of using uh, meat nomenclature. We're very keen to be on the front foot of this and, and communicate to the, the farming community and the broader livestock and meat industry that we don't want to pursue the same uh, strategy. We want to make sure it's very clear for customers uh, exactly what this product is, noting that it'll be a few years before this is in retail shelves in Woolies or Coles or anything like that. Uh, we're a bit down the track for that, but I think important at this point in time to, to set the tone and, um, and we're, we're, we're really supportive of that. Are you after that sort of supermarket market or are you looking to, to move into different markets such as uh, high-end restaurants? Yeah, so our, our starting point is in is in fine dining. Uh, so we also have an application uh, with the Singaporean Food Agency. Uh, we expect pending regulatory approval later this year or early next year, we expect to be selling in Singapore uh, in uh, 2024. And that's in the fine dining context. And, and so you referred to your process there earlier. What is your process? The process and the product have been judged safe by Fizans. Uh, so what is your process, yes. your production process? What we do is we take a, if it's from a mammal, it's usually a biopsy or from fish and uh, some fish and, and birds, usually from an egg. Um, we take the cells that repair meat, uh, connective tissue and fat cells. Then we differentiate them and try and identify those cells that uh, might give unique attributes to that species of animal uh, and those that will grow well in uh, in suspension. Um, so uh, kind of like your blood vessels, uh, your, your blood cells do, they grow in suspension. We take those, we feed them the nutrients that they would get in the uh, animal's body uh, if they're growing regularly. Uh, and we do that in a controlled, food-safe, sterile environment uh, in a big thing, big tank, essentially, called a bioreactor. Uh, and then we uh, we harvest those cells and then we turn them into delicious food products. So it's, it's about as simple as that. I mean, there's a lot of complex science beneath that, um, but at a basic level, that's that's kind of the process. For some people, this development with Fazans is really exciting. For others, uh, it's a little bit daunting. Is cultured meat the future of food or do you think that's making too much of it? We, we recognise as a, as a thing for uh, a lot of people, and I'm, look, I've come from the country, I'm a meat eater. Most of us are meat eaters here, and that probably differentiates us from every other cultured meat company out there that I'm aware of. Uh, and so we're kind of really keen to articulate that we have a slightly, a very different vision from um, the kind of cultured meat sector more broadly. So a lot of those other companies, they're perspective is that it's replacing animal agriculture, that it's looking at chicken and beef and pork, the, the, the animals we already consume and love. Our view is that that doesn't make a lot of sense. We we love eating the meat that we produce in Australia and New Zealand. We think it's delicious, it's high quality, it's sustainable, and we want to keep doing that. We have no intention to replace animal agriculture or to compete against it, which is why we've been using this technology to create new meats or meats that are harder for most people to get. So we're trying to diversify the options available for meat eaters. In terms of the future of food, we see this as a, an additional protein source uh, building alongside the sustainable farming we have. In terms of global demand for protein, we see this is another way to kind of meet that global demand for protein in a responsible way, um, the same as sustainable uh, farming does, traditional farming in Australia does. The wider industry is taking heart from the food regulator's initial assessment, saying it paves the way for the market to grow. Well, it's very exciting, not least because it's the first of its kind in Australia. This is Simon Eason, the executive director of the think tank Food Frontier. He says the export market for the potentially multi-billion dollar industry is there for the taking. But regulatory approvals aside, are people willing to buy and eat cultured meat? 
we've done our own research in a number of markets in Asia, six six dominant markets in particular across Asia. And the difficulty is you're asking the public questions where they have no valid experience. You know, with the products not out there on the shelves or out there to try, it's very difficult for them to really get their head around what this is. So I think what what the the future really is is hoped for is that these technologies become normalized as part of the way we produce food. I don't think that we, we need to be in a position where we're trying to sell people on technology as food. I think that's detrimental, and I think you know, there will always be some concerns or resistance. It's really about when are we going to get to a point where this is just normalised as another way in which food is produced. Would cultured meat in Australia be produced for consumption in Australia, or yeah. is a lot of it intended for export or will be intended for export? It can meet either requirements. I think most organisations in Australia developing this see opportunity in Asian markets. Certainly Singapore is a very vibrant market and Singapore already has cell-cultured chicken uh, available for people to consume. It's a, a question of whether Australia can lead the way and actually build up an export pipeline for this before the countries themselves develop their own internal domestic capability. China is investing very heavily in this technology, as is Singapore. So Australia needs to sort of get ahead of the game to a certain extent if it wants to keep open those export opportunities. So, you know, it it, it can go either way, but certainly everybody's looking at the potential for export opportunity. But we're in a race and Australia really does need to, you know, get its skates on if it wants to get ahead of some other countries in terms of being a leader in this. Do you think cultured meat could fill some of the demands for animal protein without the animal, or is that not the space that we're moving into? Well, all there is to say on that at the moment, because we're a very, very, very long way off from producing any of these new food products at the scale or level where it's going to impact on our traditional forms of animal agriculture. Ultimately, you know, in, in a few decades, could we be in that position? Yes, of course, that's a possibility. That's Simon Isom, who's the Director of Food Frontiers, speaking to Fiona Broom. And if you are tuning into the country hour this afternoon, I wonder what you think about the idea of sitting back this afternoon, it's lunchtime, and hooking into a good feed of cell-based quail meat. Let's bring in food futurist Tony Hunter. Uh, Tony, I guess first up, what's your take on the significance of this decision that's been made by the food safety regulator? I think it has significance very much in a local context in Australia that our local food standards body has said the product's safe. From a global perspective, it's been approved in Singapore for three years. Um, it's been approved in the US earlier this year um, from Upside Foods. And then we've got Aleph Farms um, who have put approvals in for their meat in Switzerland and the UK. So I think it's significant in that we now have approval and Fizans have acknowledged that yes, the product is safe and everything I see says it, it is safe. So Australia, a little bit behind other nations. Yeah, look, I think we, we generally are behind some of the other countries. Singapore has that real imperative to approve new technologies for their food production and the US is always at the forefront. My experience is when I started looking into this space about six years ago, we were about five years behind. Now we're only, what's that compared to the US? We're less, we're probably going to be 18 months behind by the time the final approval for sale comes through. So we're catching up pretty quickly. 
And what's your take on the cell-based industry in Australia? It, it could have gone to the regulator with all kinds of products. The first one mm-hmm. is quail. What's your take on that? Well, I think the reason for quail is, I mean, what are you going to pay $40 a kilo for? Um, a beef hamburger or a piece of quail? So you've got a lot more headspace in your production costs and it gets the headlines. Another company gets approval to make a beef hamburger. Mm. Yes, not really going to be um, a, a great deal of interest. I mean, these are the guys at Vow too who did the mammoth meatball made from mammoth meat that's now on display. Yeah. So it's been preserved. So that one, and you've got other companies as well. You've got... Um, Magic Valley with their lamb and pork products. So they'll be coming along fairly quickly behind, I would anticipate. So we've got, um, you know, a growing cultivated meat industry in Australia. And I mean, just for those who are thinking that it's some sort of threat to conventional animal meat, I mean, we're going to have 10 billion people on the planet. Uh, There's not enough arable land and fresh water to grow enough protein the way we currently do it. And animal agriculture is going to be around for a decades to come at least um, these new technologies I think are going to be needed and to put it bluntly Matt if we don't do it in Australia someone else will if you look at it from the GDP of Australia's agriculture sector it's in our best interest to drive all of these new technologies if we are going to keep improving the share of GDP from agriculture let's and the other thing is where do they think all the inputs come from to grow this cell-based cultivated meat, it comes from crops. So we're growing the crop industry to grow cultivated meat that's going to supplement the meat coming out of Australia. And I don't see it being a replacement for decades, if if ever. It's been deemed safe. That's the first yep. step. When are you expecting it to be available at restaurants? Oh, look, I mean, I think it's going to take um, 12 to 18 months for the final approval to come through. That'd be my best estimate. And I mean, hey, I am guessing here. Um, and then I think we'll start to see it in restaurants ASAP. I mean, these guys want to get the product out into high-end restaurants to show what it can do. And there are quite a few chefs who are interested in these products who want a point of difference for their restaurant. Um, the same thing as they do over in Singapore. And I think it'll be really something that generates a lot of interest when it does come to market. That's Tony Hunter, who is a food futurist. You can read more about this cell-based quail meat up online if you search for ABC Rural. On the text 0487 991057, Alan Humpty Doo says, will cell-based meat mean that dung beetles go extinct? I don't think so, Al. I reckon dung beetles have got a job for life. My name is James Gorry from TrainSafe NT. Just before you drive out bush, just do a quick inspection under your car or under the bonnet. So just keeping vehicles clean so we're not spreading biohazards, soil diseases or weeds. And enjoy listening to the Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this lunchtime. Before 1.30... You and I will be talking about cotton in Northern Australia. It's a big week for the industry. The official opening of the Cotton Gin near Catherine is happening tomorrow. The Country Hour will be there for that. And on today's program, you'll be hearing from a cotton grower in the Kimberley's Ord Irrigation Scheme who has finished his Nuffield Scholarship. His topic was cotton in the North. 
So what were some of his findings out of that research? Uh, You'll hear all of that in a moment on the Country Hour. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Rebecca Patrick is there this afternoon. Beck, ex-tropical cyclone Jasper. Where is it? What's it doing? Yeah, so Jasper crossed the uh, northeast Queensland coast uh, on Wednesday night, so last night, and is now moving westwards inland. Um, So we've finalised the warnings for Queensland uh, in terms of those cyclone warnings, but there is a severe weather warning current and um, flood warnings as well for those who who know people out that way. it is forecast to continue moving west uh, towards the Gulf of Carpentaria, where it um, could uh, yeah, move out into the Gulf of Carpentaria over the weekend um, with possible further intensification. So we're certainly keeping a, a close eye on it as it moves towards the NT. Um, and pretty much all of our forecasts in the longer term are, are very dependent on where Jasper ends up. Yeah. Yeah, it's always tough to predict uh, a, a tropical low. At the moment, it seems like it's pretty much smack bang in the middle of Cape York Peninsula, yeah? Yeah, that's right. Um, so still, you can see it quite clearly on mm. satellite imagery. Um, so yeah, moving pretty slowly westwards at the moment. So a low to moderate chance of it reforming once it gets into the Gulf of Carpentaria. It's a system that's clearly bringing lots of rain. You know, there's spots on the map that have got 300, close to 400 millimetres in just 24 hours. Can the Northern Territory, parts of the Territory, expect that type of rainfall in the coming week? Uh, There's a couple of little factors that we need to consider, and the main one being where it goes. Um, So if it does track across the middle of the top end, then yes, I would expect some significant rainfall. Um, But there is also the possibility that it goes north of the the coast, um, in which case it's probably more likely to just be the coastal areas that see more rainfall with um, probably a lot less rainfall across the inland parts of the top end because um, it could be a little bit of dry air that wraps around that southern side of the system. So, um, yeah, very, um, very varied uh, in terms of the impacts that that um, system could have depending on whether it tracks overland or or stays to the north or even it could stay in the Gulf of Carpentaria for a little bit longer as well. A lot of cattle stations in the Gulf would like some rain. There's there's actually quite a few bushfires on places like Calvert Hills, Malapanya, um, Woolagaring, a little bit of fire there as well. So they wouldn't, wouldn't mind a drop or five. Yeah, I bet. Um, well, maybe we can give them some, some storms. There are a few storms um, firing up just on the coast at the moment. So um, hopefully it could be a bit of, of rainfall out of those for them. Yeah. The rain, yes, please. The lightning, not so much. I suspect that's how these fires started in the first place. Uh, What about Central Australia and the uh, the lower part of the Barclay? What can they expect over the next few days? Uh, So we are seeing some storms starting to form up um, over the northeast Simpson at the moment. Probably Barclay's not too far away as well, looking at the satellite image um, for some storm activity this afternoon. 
the in terms of the the chance of of activity over the next few days in terms of that rainfall um there is a reasonable chance or moderate chance that we could see some some more showers and storms through those areas um very hot conditions unfortunately those temperatures uh, in the low 40s continuing particularly through the the Barkley um southern areas might see a little bit um cooler temperatures getting well slightly under <laughs> slightly under 40 degrees for a few days but um yeah pretty pretty hot um with most of the storm activity more the northern parts of the Barkley I'd say but yeah the southern parts could get something as well anything else we need to be aware of this afternoon uh, the other thing is across the top end, um, there is a risk of severe thunderstorms um, over the next few days and potentially uh, potentially for the next week, to be to be honest, depending on what Jasper does. Yep. Um, particularly damaging wind gusts uh, a risk, so we might get a little bit faster moving storms coming through over the next few days. And uh, we forgot the rainfall figures. Sorry, Beck. Uh, there's been some decent drops in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock. Yeah, um, highest was 59 millimetres at Marara here in Darwin. Um, Darwin Airport not too far behind with 48. Uh, also below River in the Gregory District um, received 48 millimetres to 9am this morning. So yeah. yeah, a little bit of rain around the place. Beauty. Thanks so much. And um, well, we, we wait and see. Hey, It could be a very interesting seven days or so weather-wise. So um, thanks for keeping us up to date. Yep, definitely. That is Rebecca Patrick at the Weather Bureau. Just going through a few more of those rainfall figures to 9 o'clock this morning. Croker Island Airport's recorded 21. East Baines River and the VRDs had 37. Williams Crossing, 14. Dashwood Crossing's recorded 11. And Dumb and Mary out near Dundee Beach, 35 millimetres in the gauge. Get ready for great new ABC Entertainment in 2024. Tony Armstrong has an extraordinary new series. Someone cut an onion? That's beautiful. <laughs> There's new seasons of Muster Dogs, Spicks and Specs, and Better Date Than Never. I'm still looking for love. And Deborah Malman is tested in the final season of Total Control. I'm not going to let this go. There's so much more in 2024 on ABC TV and ABC iView. It is 12 past one and you are tuned into The Country Hour. Keeping you up to date this afternoon on how the cricket is going. It's the first day of the first test, Australia versus Pakistan. Australia won the toss, elected to bat, and are off to a flyer. Australia are none for 82. And Dave Warner's just risen his bat. He has knocked a 50 of just 42 balls in the first session of the first test of the summer. Australia off to a flyer there. I'll keep you up to date throughout the afternoon. Uh, let's head back now to far north Queensland. Tropical cyclone Jasper crossed the coast late yesterday as a Category 2 system. Trees were blown over. There was some damage, but I think the big story from this cyclone has been the rain. There's a bunch of flood warnings in place this afternoon for Queensland, and some spots, as mentioned, have got over 300, close to 400 millimetres in the last 24 hours. Big rain, real big rain. Betty Hinton owns an ice cream shop about 10 kilometres north of the Daintree River. And she's very thankful that her home is on higher ground. I watched it go over the coast, breathed a sigh of relief and felt very sorry for the people that were under it. 
actually, I think I was under the very edge of the eye. The fact that it travelled so slowly was very trying. You know, I've been in cyclones before, a much stronger cyclone than Jasper, and it wasn't so heart-wrenching. But this one just went on and on and on, and there just didn't seem to be any relief from it. And so for 14 hours, we were buffeted here, and then the heavy rain started. At first, it was just drizzle and then showers, and then late, late last night, the rain was tremendous. And um, when I've woke up this morning, it's still raining quite heavily. And I think the forecast for North Queensland is heavy rain. And that's, of course, the, the result of Jasper. And how far are you from the Daintree River? Because that's, um, I, I understand that's oh, a flooding... I'm, I'm really safe from the Daintree River. I'm 11 kilometres from the river and I've got the Alexander Range between me and the river. And I'm feeling for those people who are close to the river because although I'm not sure, just common sense tells me that with the amount of rain we've had, those people could be in trouble. Are there a lot of people that live down there? Well, you've got Daintree Township, um, which had a tremendous flood a few years back, and um, that did a huge amount of damage. There are people that live along the river, but um, I don't know how high the river will be at the moment, but I fear that with this heavy rainfall, and as I've just checked the radar and it looks as though it's go, going to go on raining, um, those people could be in trouble. I and, hope they're not, but my heart goes out to them. Yeah, and where you are, it's still early, it's still dark, I imagine, but... Yeah, it's just, I've just noticed it's, I'll have a quick look outside and see what I can see. It's still windy, but not like last night. And the yard's covered in sticks and the, it's gusting that I wouldn't be really comfortable going outside. Of course, and, no. And, and, unless I had to, yeah. But the, the trees, they've lost a lot of the leaves. And yeah. how does, does the house look like it's sustained any damage at all? Oh, the house is fine. Yeah. My husband and I built the house and um, we said we would build it for a Cat 5. And at the time, the council said or Cat 3 was fine because we're in such a protected area. But we built it for five. And so it is strong. Yeah. And the house is fine. A couple, a couple of years ago, I thought, oh, I'll have this roof re-screwed. And so I did that. I got a professional person in and he re-screwed the roof. And uh, so I thought my roof will be secure. And um, I felt very safe. It, it's like a bunker. <laughs> that is Betty Hinton, who runs an ice cream store to the north of the Daintree River in far north Queensland. She was speaking there to Gavin Coote. It is 17 past one here on the Country Hour. As you know, cotton is an emerging industry in northern Australia. And up next, you'll get to hear from one of its growers who has just completed his Nuffield Scholarship. His topic was cotton in the tropics. What did he learn? 
He'll tell you next. On ABC Radio, this is the Country Hour. A farmer in the Kimberley's Ord Irrigation Scheme has completed his Nuffield Scholarship, which focused on Northern Australia's emerging cotton industry. Fritz Bolton has started growing cotton himself in the Ord and says it's got a big future in the region if everyone works together. Um, so I've, I applied for the Nuffield Scholarship three years ago. My my topic was around finding biological and or mechanical solutions. Look, the key finding is that we need to learn how to collaborate. So if we as growers were to all work together and everybody pool their resources and skill sets so that we all go where the conditions are right, where it's dry, we could get, we could get all the planting done. Um, but we need to have we need to let our egos go. So obviously my planter is better than my neighbours and I'm much better at planting than uh, the crops than he is. Um, and if we don't lose that attitude, it's not going to work. And we also need to, we need to really learn to be other orientated. In other words, um, I need to be able to go and leave my farm to plant my neighbours for two days, even though I might lose one day's of opportunity on our own place. So that as a, as a whole, we, we plant crops at the right time. Is that something that you see happening? Like, have you already started this process of do you take your planter over to your neighbours if their paddock's ready and yours isn't? Definitely, yep. So um, we planted all of our neighbours' cotton this year. We, we, we planted our... We planted his chia. We worked together on harvesting those crops. Um, the, the, the culture is there already. And, um, and the key is to, to start this collaboration on a small scale with the right, with the right neighbours. Um, show everybody else that it can work and what the benefits are and what the risks are. Um, we need to be really open about, about the pros and cons and I think if we if we have the culture and the mindset that collaboration is the way to go, it can take us to so many more levels. You know, we can all of a sudden become large scale farmers with on a family farm structure. How does it work in practice? I I think every farmer has an experience of maybe loaning a big piece of gear to the neighbour and, and not getting it back in time or or maybe feeling a bit guess shorthanded at the end of it. Yeah, I think it's um Firstly, we need to embrace the the concept to know that there's going to be some failures and some pain, as well as the benefits. And I think there's a there's there's a good chance that it can work, but the reality is that there's a really high chance that it won't. So so when I talk to the growers that I want to collaborate with and explain to them. The compromises they have to make, in other words, you're going to come to my place when the conditions are right and you're not doing your own, everybody rolls their eyes. So the, the, the way to start this concept will be to have really clear parameters about how to communicate and how to make those decisions, how to allocate, allocate those costs, and, um, and the key will be there's, there's one or two growers that I know that the give and take will be in balance. That's where we're going to start. That's who we're going to start working with. 
That is cotton grower and Nuffield scholar Fritz Bolton speaking to Alice Marshall. And I'm not sure, but I am hoping to see Fritz in person tomorrow at the official opening of the Northern Territory's first ever cotton gin. So the gin that's been built on Tawu Station to the north of Catherine, it's having its official opening tomorrow. The Country Hour will be there. So make sure you tune into tomorrow's program to learn all about the new cotton gin and growers' hopes for 2024 and beyond. That will be a big story tomorrow. One of the other big stories tomorrow is that Friday will be the last ever episode of The Tinny. Tales from the Tinny. This Friday, it's lines in and full noise into the mangroves as Tales from the Tinny says goodbye. Here's stacks of vintage tinny yarns and some old school voices. As the boys reflect on 17 years of fishing silliness in the top end. Only problem is, the cricket's on at the same time. Cricket? You've got to be joking! It's all good, but because you can still join on the ABC Listen app. The Tales from the Tinny finale, available this Friday on the ABC Listen app. Uh, uh, the cricket, hey? And by the way, Australia are doing very well. They are none for 95 in the first session of the first test. Warner's on 59, Kawaja's on 33. But yes, tomorrow, a big day for the ABC. The Country Hour will be at the official opening of the new cotton gin north of Catherine and then the last ever episode of Tales from the Tinny. Yesterday on the Drive program with Liz Travaskas, a beautiful hour-long tribute to the Tinny and it concluded with a song to the tune of Viva Las Vegas. It's made a long barrel, which I thought could take out today's country hour. Enjoy. Run off barrel, gonna smoke my reel. It's gonna set my spool on fire. The whole lot of waiting, but now it's my turn. So break that drag up higher. There's a thousand creeks and runoffs where that girl can hide. But hiding days are over, lady, luck's on my side. Got my time as bright's way, now it's time to be bright. Meet her on Baron. Meet her on Baron. When she hits on a run, gonna have me some fun if it costs me the skin of my thumb. Double plucked on the gunnel, my vision's a tunnel. She'll rue the day that my way she swung. I've been gonna give her everything I got. If she gets any slack, she'll be off like a shot. And when she hits the net, she'll be the time on the dot. Meet her, Long Barrow. Meet her, Long Barrow. Meet her, Long Barrow, with your silver flakes of flesh within your mighty tail crashing. Brain the size of a pea. Meet a long flower turn from bloke into Sheila, turn this bloke into a hero. Let me catch you once, snap and and send you back to sea. Yeehaw! Oh, I wish that there were more than just 24 cans in a slab. Uh-huh. Even if there were 40 more, I reckon I'd give it a stab. I'll be licking and hollering and dancing about. When we're back in town, it's gonna be my shout. Had a monkey on my back, but I kicked the basket out with a meter long barrel. Meter long barrel. Meter long barrel. Meter 
Uh, the Tinnies' final episode is tomorrow. Keep it rural.